Lord, I pray that you would encourage us now through the truth of your word. Lord, help us to take your word seriously. Lord, that it would be more than just a book that we carry or a tool or a weapon that we use to, to, to combat against things that we don't agree with, Lord, but may it be the very words of God that influence and impact the lives that we live and the people that we become and are. God, speak to us through this time and through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, when I was in Bible college, I used to take a, a whole lot of flack for my Bible collegiate brethren and sisterin, if you will. And, and part of the reason that I took so much flack wasn't the, the normal eccentricities and oddities that we, we notice today. It wasn't because of earrings. It wasn't because of clothing. It wasn't because of hair, though I did have rules created for me for those things at Appalachian Bible College. Those weren't the things that made me stand out amongst other Bible college students. The thing that actually made me stand out most amongst other Bible college students was, of all things, the size of my Bible. The size of my Bible. I've always loved the thin line Bibles, and I've always loved the ones that I could put in my pocket. I figure I want it to be with me at all times and all places, and I want a hard copy. So if I can fit it in my pocket and take it off of my back, that's a good deal for me. Well, in Bible college, though, you're there to study the Word, right? You're there to figure out what it says and, and to get the, as many, much expert opinion as you can to shove it in your head. And so what was very in vogue at the time in Bible college in southern West Virginia was study Bibles. And they always had a saying that they would throw at me, and the saying went like this. The bigger the Bible, the more holy the holder. The bigger the Bible, the more holy the holder. I always felt like, well, if you hide it in your heart, you don't have to hold it in your hands. And so that's what I always used to throw back at them. But there was very much a sense, and I learned even amongst pastors, there was a sense of, of needing a big block of a Bible so that people would notice it. There's something about the symbol of a bigger Bible in your hand that people see and notice it. And we can... We can be, you know, judgmental and be like, oh, that is, that is so shallow and whatever. We all have things. We, we, as an American culture, are all about signs and symbols. And not just in America. That's true everywhere in the world. There are signs and symbols that send messages to people about who we are, what we believe, what we're about, right? The logo drop shirts are a big thing, right? I can look out amongst us right now and see uh, at least four or five people with First Baptist Church, Seymour shirts. On any given day, I can look out and see numerous other logos, whether they be IU or Purdue or Notre Dame. We are all about affiliation and sending clear signs and symbols about where our allegiances lie in various ways and at various times. And in Bible college, one of the ways we showed that was big Bibles. We like these symbols, signs of status and affiliation. But symbols and signs, while not a bad thing, are a poor replacement for actual action and involvement. The signs and symbols mean very little if they don't impact the way we live our lives, the thing we do, things we do, and the attitudes that we display. And Paul, as we continue on in Romans, as he goes on from talking about the creation and talking about, you know, the, this list of, of sins and and. Uh, and failures in our lives and the things that put us all in the same boat of, of, of being those that have 
transgress the law of God, Paul brings our attention to the law of God, the word of God, and how important it is and how meaningful it is in as much as we apply it to our lives. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 12. Romans 2, starting in verse 12. And it says this, Romans 2, 12 and following, All who sin apart from the law will also, also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law and who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of the and knowledge of the truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? And you who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who hate or abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are lawbreakers. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. So Paul, there's a few things that I want us to note as we talk about this. A lot of times when we talk about the law in the New Testament, we immediately go to the, the, the Judaic code, and that is right. But, but there are a couple of different things that go into the law. There was the moral code that God had for the people of Israel, and there was the ceremonial code that God had for the people. There were two different, different types of law. And, and Paul has already told us that creation itself points to a certain order, a law itself, uh, uh, an order of being, a way to live, uh, a set of requirements, if you will, that God naturally has for us that he wants us to follow. As we read law here, I don't want us to think of the religious hoop jumping alone. We have to keep in, in mind the moral code of God because what Paul is talking about here is not just rules and regulation, but the very word of God, the very a word of God. And Paul is making a clear statement about how the word of God and having the word of God and even obeying the word of God 
doesn't necessarily, or does not, excuse me, save us. But he's not saying that we shouldn't do what God's word says. Quite the contrary. So I want to look at this as we consider pledging allegiance to Jesus Christ and what that looks like in our lives. I think this is very important as Paul lays the framework for where he's about to go. We're going to talk about the signs of citizenship this morning. And the first and most important sign of citizenship in the kingdom of God is obedience. The first sign of citizenship is obedience. Hearing is only of value in as much as it leads to doing. Hearing is only of value in as much as it leads to doing. As parents, let's be honest with one another. Is, the, is there anything more frustrating than going into your kid's room or talking to one of your children and saying, hey, this is what I need you to do. Clean your room, make your bed, grab your shoes off of the, the steps on your way upstairs, and giving them clear instructions over and over and over again and having them acknowledge the instructions. Yes, I understand your instructions, and then go on as if you said nothing. Is there anything more frustrating I mean, maybe there is for you, but that is one of the things that makes me want to crawl out of my skin. I've said it. I know that you've heard it because you acknowledged me. So now you are just directly disobeying me or ignoring what I've said. Either way, we have a problem, right? I think the same thing is true when it comes to God's word. It's one thing to hear God's word and be encouraged by it, right? It's one thing to, to hide God's word in our heart. But if God's word doesn't get into our heart and make its way into our hands and our feet and our heads and the way that we live life, we've missed the point. As a matter of fact, I, I, would, I would submit to you that we oftentimes, as Christians today, there are many ways that we could take the term Jew in this passage. And, and we as Christians in our modern time are making the same mistakes that the Jews did in the first century. We have become a modern iteration of the Pharisees in many ways. We have all of the knowledge and all of the truth and all of the arrogance that accompanies having that knowledge in our head, but so often we fail to apply it. Obedience, though, is important. And Paul has already clearly stated that creation itself contains enough evidence to convince us of God's existence and to provide us with some basic expectations and understanding of how we are to live in result, as a result of God's existence. To, and to convict us for failing to act accordingly. The, the creation and the various things that we see around us. This is, this is what we would call general revelation in theological terms. It is revelation that is available to all people at all times and all places. That just looking out and seeing the sun rising and setting. Watching and understanding just with basic conscience and morality. How we should treat one another in relationship. Those are things that, sure, the Bible does clarify, but that we understand, right? Do you really need to be told that you should treat others as you yourself want to be treated? Is that not one of those things that is just self-evident? That if I don't want to be punched in the face, I probably shouldn't punch someone else in the face? I mean, these, these are basic things, and we could go through a long list of them, and, and creation and just basic humanity within us convicts us. And Paul talks about that on and off throughout this passage, the reality that God has placed within us a conscience that convicts us and, and convinces us of, of certain elements of right and wrong that are just obvious. 
special revelation. And Paul has spent all of verse, all of chapter 1 and into chapter 2 talking about the fact that general revelation itself is enough to bring judgment and condemnation upon us. Because it convinces us that there is a God, that there is a standard, that there is an order that should be sought out and followed. But God didn't stop with general revelation. God didn't just stop with, with the sunrises and the sunsets and, and the, the turning of the season. God went a step further beyond general re- revelation, and he provided what we call special revelation. Now, special revelation comes through a variety of means. It comes through, through visions and, and words of prophecy and things of that nature. But the biggest, most important element of special revelation that God has provided for us is right here. It is the transcendent, authoritative word of God. It is the truth that God has passed down through the ages as inspired men and women wrote as God led them to record the history and the expectations of God that we might read them, evaluate them, and then apply them to our lives. God, through his word, revealed himself to us. And it goes an even a step further. I would say that even a greater revelation or special revelation is Jesus himself. Right? John chapter 1 tells us that, that the word was made flesh and lived among us. That in Jesus, we had a physical manifestation and representation. A living representative of what it looks like to live out the truth of God's word. And to live in relationship with God. And we, we have all of these things available that, that point us to God. That, that give us the understanding of who God is and how God functions. And gives us understanding of how life should be lived in, in a righteous way. How, how God has made us to live life and who God expects us to be. And God has placed these before us and then given us the example through Christ. In verse 13, Paul tells us, that it is not those who hear the law or the word of God who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Now I want to be clear, and I'm going to say this multiple times this morning because I want you to understand this. We are not saved through our actions. Living a right life and, and living the, the, the truth of God's word will not save us. None of us, we're going to see next week, none of us can do it perfectly. We all mess up. We all screw up. But our understanding of God's expectation should result in action. God's revelation should result in in repentance from us. That that is the primary purpose of God's word for us, is is for us to realign ourselves. As as we've been moving away from God's expectation, Paul has already said in chapter 2, that it's intended to lead us, God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance, that it it would turn us away from from our destructive, self-seeking tendencies and turn us back towards God, continue to turn the proverbial ship so that we are aligned with God, moving towards his expectation and living in the light of life that he has provided for us. Hearing is only of value when it leads to doing. And the truth is this, that the world should be able to see that we are people of God. They should be able to experience that we are the people of God long before we say anything. The people should experience the reality of our connection to our creator and our alignment with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ long before we share it with them. I've used the quote before. St. Francis is known for saying, preach the gospel wherever you go, and when necessary, use words. Now, I, you, you, 
those that attend regularly know that I believe that words are absolutely necessary. Living the gospel without explaining the gospel is just philanthropy. Jesus is the one that makes the difference. But it is a both-and situation. People should know you are Christians by your love, right? Long before you say it, they should feel it. And this is true of us as, as Americans. This is true nationally. I can't go anywhere without people knowing that I am American. It, 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 I scream. My, my appearance screams American. As a matter of fact, I remember being in India one time, and, and the, the Maharashtra, the, the governing sect in the area, was, was really cracking down on Christians from out of the country coming in to share. And so they had told the, the students when we first got there, they said, listen, do not post any of this on Facebook while we're doing it. Then they pulled us to the side, we Americans, and they said, listen, so we've got security outside. And if the security, if the police come, the security is going to come inside and they're going to tell us. And what we need you to do at that point is we need you to jump off the balcony back here and go hide in the market. Just blend in and we'll come find you. And I looked around at my buddies, two other pastors, and I looked back at them at the time my hair was bleached blonde. And, and I was like, listen, I am six foot and a half an inch, 5'11", according to my most recent physical. I am still a good five inches taller than everybody around me. I am pale white. I have earrings and I have tattoos. Like, I might as well just wait for the police to come and collect me and get my sermon illustration right now because there is no blending in. Like, if this were a Where's Waldo game, I am going to lose. I am the worst Waldo. Just blend in. There, there is no hiding the American in me. The reality is tr should be true for us as Christians. We should not be able to hide the Jesus in us. We should not be able to hide the truth of God's word. That it, we may hide God's word in our heart, but the actions of our lives should be unmistakable as a result of the word that has been implanted. It's not just keeping it back for our own encouragement and benefit. It is placing it inside so that it might reorient our lives and fundamentally shift the way that we live and interact with others. Faith is not intended. Hear me on this, folks. Faith is not intended to be a private thing. It was never intended to be something that is just personal between you and Jesus. That is a lie of the modern Western machination. It is not meant to be that. The faith that we have should impact every area of our lives and should be something that we live in community with one another that should then impact the way that we live in the community at large. Faith should be a very public thing that impacts every aspect of our lives. And yes, God loves us and saves us as we are. But he leaves us too much to leave us that way. Just as parents, we, we love our children as they are, right? We love them right now, exactly as they are. Whatever faults and, and, and failures and foibles, and, and even as they're young, we enjoy some of those, those, those trip-ups and those things where they make mistakes. We enjoy those things. But, but the expectation is not that they will keep doing those things. 
there is an expectation and a desire for us as parents that as they grow, they would continue to mature, that they would continue to develop, that, that they would become less little humans and more become big humans, and that they would function appropriately in society. They would find their place. That's the desire, right? Why would we think that God Almighty expects anything less of us, his children? His desire is that we would continue to grow in our understanding and knowledge of his word and that that understanding would, would be applied to practice in how we live our lives. Obedience won't save us, but it is expected. Obedience won't save us, but it is expected. We shouldn't reduce our relationship with our Lord to, to rote ritual. It's not, this is not a matter of religious or spiritual hoop jumping. But we are to adjust our lives in, re in response to our relationship with him. Again, verse 16, relationship with Jesus is the key. Jesus is the key. Jesus is the source of our salvation and the standard against which we are judged. Verse 16, it tells us this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets. Through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. I mean, that's, that gives us, we talked about this last week. There, there are two things inherent in that. that. That if we have relied upon Christ's saving grace, if, if we have put our trust and faith in him, that Christ is the mirror against which we judge ourselves. That the, he is the one we look at. And, and James talks about that, that, that. That the one who comes to the word of God and doesn't change is like one who looks in a mirror, sees their messed up hair, and walks away as if everything is fine. And that's not how it should be. We should come to the law of grace. We should come to the truth of God's word. We should see the reality of Jesus and how our lives don't align with that. And we should seek to make adjustments. We're going to be judged by, by the grace of Jesus. So when we are living in Christ, yes, we are covered by his blood, and we are saved through his perfection and his sacrifice, but we are still to align ourselves and be molded to his image. The problem is if we haven't accepted Christ, we'll be judged against that standard which none of us can meet. We are ultimately declared righteous by faith in Christ. Our, our, our righteousness comes not through the actions that we do, but through the declaration of Christ. The declaration of God's righteous judgment and justice through Jesus. But we are still to live in to that declaration of righteousness. A right life should be in the works that follow the declaration that Christ makes. In, Galatians, in Ephesians 2, one of the passages that people like to quote when they say, well, salvation is by grace through faith, not by works, is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and following. And it says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. But then he goes on to say this, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. The problem comes where we get the proverbial cart before the horse. When we flip the paradigm, when we make the salvation come from our works, that our works then, that, that our works then are what brings salvation along, that's not the way that happens. God's salvation that he brings about in our lives should bring behind them good works. Good works don't bring about salvation, but salvation should bring about good works in our lives. Obedience should be an outworking of our faith. As the old children's Sunday school song says, obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. 
Obedience is the first sign of citizenship. And I think it's important for us to understand that it's not just the, there's not just a positive side to the obedience. There is, that is there. But there is a negative side to the disobedience. That disobedience leads others to disbelief. That when our lives fail to align with the truth we claim to believe, we give mixed signals and we undercut our message. Here's the truth that we see in Paul's passage here in Romans chapter 2. The more revelation we have received, the more responsibility we bear. The more revelation we have received, the more responsibility we bear. Paul takes aim here at the original people of God, the Jews. The Jews took great pride in being God's people. As a matter of fact, there's historical record that, that demonstrates in the time of Jesus that when Jews would live uh, in the diaspora, when they would live out in other communities, specifically in Gentile communities, that they, they would adapt and adjust their names, their very names, to make sure that people knew they were Jews. In much the way, they would do it in much the way that we use academic letters. For instance, my, my name with the academic letters is Jeremy Myers D. Min, D-M-I-N. It indicates my, my level of education, that the doctorate is there. In, in Jesus' time, when people lived out in different communities, they would add Jew to their name. So instead of Jeremy Myers D. Min, it would be Jeremy Myers Jew. They would put it in big letters at the end of their name, and they would use it as an actual surname. They wanted everybody to know their affiliation. And the truth is, the Jews did hold a very privileged position over all of their people groups in the world. They were the sole recipients and proprietors of the truth of God, of God's word. Verse 17, Paul notes it. He says, now you, if you call yourself a Jew... If you rely on the law and boast in God, which, which is exactly what they did. And they had something that was worth boasting on. Paul's going to talk about that as he goes into chapter 2. That there, there was some advantage to being the first ones to receive God's word. But there were also expectations that came with that. The problem is over time, the Jews began to develop the big head. They believed that their privileged position made them fundamentally better than everyone else, and they took every, every opportunity to let them know it. It wasn't just that God had given, you know, we go back to, to Abraham, right? God chooses Abram just randomly out of the crowd. There's nothing particularly special about Abram. Nothing that, that would make God choose him necessarily over anyone else. Abram is chosen 100% as a result of the gracious mercy of God. God picks him. God provides his people with the law and the truth of his word. God, God makes a people out of two people who couldn't reproduce. God does this amazing thing. Over time, though, they lose, they lost their understanding of the grace of God and God's continued mercy and hand of love upon them, and they made it about themselves. They, they left behind the part of the Abrahamic prom promise that, that was that all nations will be blessed through you. They were concerned about their own blessing, their own position, their own privilege. Verse 19 through 20, Paul uses terms that, that the Jews would commonly use to describe themselves and Gentiles. Paul says, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, that you are a light for those who are in the dark, that you are an instructor 
for the foolish. If you are a teacher of little children. All of these things show and elevate the, the merits of being a Jew and the problems of being a Gentile. Jews were guides, while the Gentiles were blind. Jews were light, while the Gentiles were in the dark. Jews were instructors and teachers, but the Gentiles were foolish children. You might ask, why, why is that problematic? Because there is a truth to, to all of those things. The problem is that they were using those titles and that terminology as a means to beat down the Gentiles, to, to, to elevate themselves and attack their enemies. God's word was, was used as a means to, to make themselves feel important, look important, and make others look inconsequential. When God's word becomes a tool to demonstrate our worth and a weapon to point out the worthlessness of others, we've missed the point. When God's word becomes a tool to demonstrate our worth and the worthlessness of others, we've missed the point. God's word was never intended to, to function as a blunt object with which to beat the people of the world. The primary purpose of divine revelation is to reveal to us the greatness of God and to call humanity to repentance. And those who have God's word have a responsibility to humbly and graciously share it with those who, have, who do not have it. And Paul brings out the failure. That, that is the great failure of the Jews. I, I, I I actually love the story of, of Jonah specifically because of this. Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh, not because he thinks the mission will fail, but because he knows the mission is going to succeed. And he cannot stomach the fact that God and his, his grace would be applied to these wicked Gentiles, these undeserving people. There's, there's in, in the book of Jonah, you see clearly the, the attitudes that have developed that we are God's deserving people and everyone else out there is worthless and deserving of judgment. Paul builds them up only to tear them down. In verses 21 through 22, he, he asks, do you practice what you're preaching? Do, do you do what it is you say are so, is so important? If you read my article or blog this week, you, you, you know that uh, I, I have been on the wrong side of the law at least once in my life. That several years ago, I was held in contempt of court. I do not recommend it. And, and the reason I was held in contempt of court is that I skipped jury duty. And what happened was this. I'd received a letter that, that told me I was summoned to jury duty. And it's important to note that this was federal jury duty, not state or local. So I'd been summoned to federal jury duty. I got the letter, and it said to fill out all of the information and send it back. Now, when I'd filled out the letter in Indiana once when I'd been summoned for jury duty, the way that it worked is you filled out the information, you send it in, and they would call me if I, they needed me. And I assumed from the brief part of the letter that I read that that was how it was going to work. So I filled it all out, I sent it on in, and then I went back about my life until one day a gentleman showed up at my door with a manila envelope and made me sign for the letter that, that informed me that I had been summoned I had been summoned to court for a hearing because I was being held in contempt. That I was now not the juror, but the defendant. Again, do not recommend it. 
So I go in and I, I'm standing at the defendant side of the, the court. It is just like it looks in, in the, the court shows, but way darker. And so I'm standing there, and, and the lady, the, the magistrate begins talking to me. And she says, um, well, Reverend Myers, even using my title, Reverend Myers, I, I look here, and um, you have quite an impressive resume, sir. And I was like, well, <laughs> thank you, you know, I try. She's like, I notice here that um, you, you're a pastor in St. Albans. Is that, is that correct, sir? Yes, ma'am, that, that's correct. I'm a youth pastor. Actually, the gentleman over there, the, the district attorney that just had to recuse himself, he goes to my church. And she's like, oh, that's very interesting. Um, so I, you, you speak to people on a regular basis, and I'm assuming that, that in your job that, that you, there's a lot of reading that's gone into you attaining your level of education and your certifications. Is that, is that true, Reverend Myers? I'm like, absolutely, yeah, I've, I've, I've done a little educating, you know, I've been in a little bit of education in my life. And she's like, well, I, and I noticed that you're actually going on for your doctorate right now. That's pretty impressive, sir. She's like, I would think that a man with your level of education and the amount of reading that you, you, you do could understand a simple letter. I was like, oh, I don't like where this is going. <laughs> I, you, sir, I, I don't understand how, how you can read ancient, dead languages and find a way to understand and apply them to your lives. But this one-page letter in plain English that, that people who failed out of high school can understand, you somehow, sir, could not understand this letter. And I, I was standing there realizing that I was totally exposed and without excuse. That there, was, there was no defense for me. None. All I could do was throw myself on the mercy of the court because she was absolutely right. She had me dead to rights. I had read the information, but I had failed to make sure I understood and applied it properly. Paul levels the same accusation against the people of God. I'm sure they had the word of God. They had read it. They understood it. They even wore it on their foreheads and on their hands. They wrote it on their homes. And, and the word of God was around them everywhere. Yet somehow, with all of the reading, they, they'd failed to rightly apply it to their lives. They, they turned it into this weapon and were beating others with it, but failing to turn it on themselves. I think there's a warning in here for us as followers of Jesus. Before we take the word of God and we point it outward at the world, we need to make sure that we're pointing it inward at ourselves. Before we complain about the realities of the wickedness in the world and the failure to align with the truth of God's word, we need to make doggone sure that we are doing everything we can to live it rightly in our own lives. And I would say that our, our job, again, and I pointed this out last week, is not to use God's word to beat the world up for worlding. The world's going to world. They're going to do what the world do. Paul says that in Corinthians not a pro it's not our problem that that's happening. Sure, we should be proclaiming the word of God and calling them to repentance. But before we call them to repentance, we ourselves need to humbly be repenting before God and seeking to live a right life in light of his word. Failure to practice what we preach preaches louder than anything we might say. The hypocrisy of the people of God throughout history has been the greatest hindrance to the work of God in the world. Paul says this in verse 24. As it is written, God's name is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. 
Let's turn that and, and explain what it means. That, that God's, God's name is disrespected and held in disrepute because of the actions of the people of God. People won't buy what we're selling when we refuse to buy the product ourselves. People won't buy what we're selling when we refuse to buy the product ourselves. Every accusation that Paul levels against first century Jews could easily be turned on us today. We could easily read through this passage and take every instance where it says Jew and say Christian, and the application would be appropriate. Brendan Manning, several years ago, in one of his books, famously said this, and it, it went out with the, the album Jesus Freak. He said this, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. The first life we should be seeking to transform by the power and presence of the word of God should be our own. God's word needs to be pointed inward. And when we fail to align our lives with what we claim to believe, the world looks at it and says, this just isn't believable. I don't buy what they're selling. Disbelief leads others, disobedience leads others to disbelief. The outward signs should reveal the inward reality. The outward signs should reveal the inward reality. Reality. Again, the greatest sign of our citizenship in the kingdom of God is the lives we live. For the Jews, they, they held on to circumcision. But circumcision didn't automatically result in a right heart. When the symbols worn don't match the lives lived, the sign points to internal problems. And for us, the sign has changed. Circumcision isn't our sign. The sign is, is baptism. And baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. The truth is that in the command of Christ, baptism is supposed to be the first step on a journey to greater and greater obedience. What did Jesus say? Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded you. There's a sense where that baptism, that being lowered into water, yes, it is an important and, and, and a an important means of grace and an important sign and symbol for us as a people of faith. But once we come up from that water, the life that we live as we step out of it should be continually oriented to Christ more and more by the truth of his word. And here's the reality that we need to understand today. It is possible to have all the symbols and signs but still, but still fail to show the reality of faith in our lives. For the Jews, it was offering sacrifices at the temple. It was wearing religious clothing. It was praying three times a day. It was avoiding certain foods and interactions with certain people. It was wearing scripture on, on, on head and hands. But for us, it's going to church, praying before meals in bed, carrying our Bibles, quoting scripture, listening to Christian music, posting Christian content on social media, and if we're super old school, not smoking, drinking, or chewing, or going with girls who do. I'm not saying that, that some of these aren't valuable practices. They are, but, but they fail to get to the heart of the matter, which is the heart itself. 
being a citizen in the kingdom of God requires us to constantly evaluate and realign our hearts to match the heart of our king, Jesus. You know, I, I go back to the beginning, and in this whole passage, Paul is talking about the inefficacy of the law to save. That, that if all it is is we're carrying around a book, and we have the book in our hands, but we don't have the book in our hearts, that, that it is complete, it is not only worthless, it is dangerous and damaging. It, see, the, the, the truth is, it's, it's not about the size of the book that we carry in our hands that matters. It's how much of that, that book has, has settled into our hearts and minds and, and altered the outworking of our lives that really matters. There are many signs of citizenship in the kingdom of God. But the one that matters most is the life of the citizen in light of the existence of the Savior. We've been brought into the family of God, into his kingdom, by what Christ has done for us and in us. May that lead to outward signs of obedience and grace that convince others of his existence. May they experience the reality of, of God's word, the goodness of his grace through the lives that we live as well as the words that we say. And may God's kingdom continue to expand as we demonstrate his love to a world in need. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us today. I thank you for the calling that you've provided for us in our lives. I thank you for the truth of your word. For the ways that it reveals to us the reality of who you are and the grace that you have shown to us. Lord, I pray that, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. As Jesus has said, the words that have, have been given to your church and that we might apply them to our lives and hearts. God, may we be your people. May, be, be, may it be seen in the lives we live and the things that we do and the love we demonstrate. May your word not just be something that we carry around, but something that we live out. May we understand that it's the very truth of God for our lives. In Jesus' name.